listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Adverse drug reactions, or ADRs, are a serious issue in healthcare today. The pharmacist is the last line of defense to help prevent ADRs. A rising role of the pharmacist is the specialist who focuses on our children. Pediatric pharmacy ensures safe and effective drug use and optimal medication therapy outcomes in children up to 18 years of age. Currently, there are more than 1,450 board-certified pediatric pharmacy specialists, known as BPS. If you're interested in this expanding field of pharmacy, this podcast is for you. All right, everyone, let's give it up for our host. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Jenna Quinn, your host of the Pediatrics Pharmacist Review from the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm super excited also to introduce today his first podcast. podcast with us, my new co-host, Justin Cole, who's an amazing fellow pediatric pharmacist. I'm going to give Justin um, a second to join in, uh, jump in and introduce himself. Yeah, Jenna, I'm so excited to be joining you here on the Pediatric Pharmacist Review. Um, I'm not completely new to this podcast thing, but going to be a learning curve here as we uh, talk about some different topics. Uh, I have another podcast called Disrupt, but it's spelled D-I-S-R-X-U-P-T. That X is silent, like we often use it here in pharmacy. Um, And we talk about pharmacy innovation topics on that particular podcast. But as Jenna said, I am a pediatric pharmacist by training, have been that for about 17 years, and pediatrics is still my passion. So I am so excited to join you, Jenna. It's going to be a blast. It is. I'm very, very excited. And today we are being joined by Christina um, McGatty. Am I saying that right? Or am I butchering you? Okay, I'm like, or am I butchering that? Um, And she is another fellow pediatric and maternal health pharmacist, which is very unique in our space. A lot of times we kind of just organically have to be the... the expert of both, but it sounds like you you have a very unique role. And so I'm going to pause here and let Christina introduce herself as well. Yeah. Um, so my name is Christina McAtee. I am an operations pharmacist at Riley Children's Hospital. It's um, a fairly well-known uh, children's hospital in the country. And we're really proud of that. Um, I have uh, been in several different roles. Um, Currently, I uh, work in a decentral model, so um, a hybrid of operations and clinical services. I work primarily in that position. I work as an emergency room pharmacist in an extension of clinical services down there. In the evenings, I work at our sister hospital, IU North, and we provide pediatric services up there for one of our smaller regional hospitals. And then I also am uh, maternity, the maternity pharmacist, one of them, there's a group of us, um, and we provide maternal services, which yes, that is, we are very unique in that our maternal services for um, all of IU Health are at Riley. That's amazing. Yeah, that is really unique. And I got to know your counterpart, Nicole, well, which is how, again, this is a very, you, you know, unique service and not all fetal maternal um, 
pharmacists are like, you know, that's not, that's a newer and upcoming term, fetal maternal pharmacist. So we're really excited to have you on. And today we're going to talk about the, the hot topic of RSV. Um, and so it really, for lack of a better word, is, is hot right now. And um, we're excited that, you know, what, you, what you'll get into, this really does affect um, children, neonates, um, and we, we really want, we're excited about the new drugs that we have now to offer them to provide them protection. So, um, Justin, you want to start off with the first question? We'll bounce back and forth. Sounds great. Yeah. So, Christina, in pediatrics, it feels like 2023 is the year of RSV, right? We've had all of these new therapeutics coming to the market. But before we get into that, could you remind our listeners exactly what RSV is and what are the symptoms that we see of infection in children? Sure. So RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, um, is probably the most common um, respiratory virus that um, children will get. Um, most patients will develop, will get their first infection within their first year of life. Um, almost everybody gets it within their second year of life, and that timeline does matter um, as our new drugs are kind of targeting usually the first six months to first year of life. Um, in most people, it's just a really bad cold. Even our babies that get it their first time, um, they will start with, you know, an upper respiratory prodrome-like syndrome, runny nose. It can develop into a cough after that. Um, then our, some of our babies can get even sicker, and then it develops more into a lower respiratory infection. So that's when you, um, I'm sure we've all heard of, um, all of us pharmacists have probably heard of bronchiolitis, which is really common. And that's really one of the reasons, the main hospital um, reason for hospitalization patients with RSV. Um, but you can all have also RSV pneumonia as well. Yeah. And I think if you're a Pete's pharmacist, you've most likely taking care of a, a really young child, usually under the age of three months or six months in a PICU setting where you've seen really scary things like intubation with RSV. And, and so this is a, a topic of, of heightened awareness for all of us. And we're eager to learn how we can keep these kids out of the PICU because for, for many years, as long as I was practicing the hospital, now I'm in the AmCare space, like during the winter, that was like a lot of our, a lot of our admissions. And it's really scary to see. Um, Christina, how does RSV compare to other respiratory viruses like influenza and COVID-19? Uh, they're very similar and a lot of their symptoms really do cross over. The one thing I'll say, you don't always present with a fever in RSV. Um, so whereas more like flu is like, you know, Classically, we have a large, or a very high fever. Um, same with COVID-19. The other thing with COVID and with flu is that you see that you don't see with RSV are more GI symptoms and things like that. RSV really tends to just be respiratory. Yes, that that is true. And our little guys, I feel like, especially with COVID, a lot of them presented with those GI symptoms and like the the children like headaches too, which I feel like are unique mm -hmm. as compared to RSV. So thank you for that. So a reminder for our listeners is that RSV is, is first diagnosed from a, a clinical presentation looking at signs and symptoms, but also we can do viral PCR testing for kids that come to the emergency department or the hospital. Um, so Christina, coming back to you, 
Can you tell us a bit about how RSV impacts pediatric patients that come to hospitals? Is this a, a common illness, like you've you've said? How how do hospitals then? Um, how are they impacted by RSV? So right now, well, traditionally there would be seasonality, and we would be able to build up and get into. Um, prepare for the season more, order um, whatever medications that we thought we were going to need. Um, we even, our NICU pharmacist will start identifying patients that would qualify um, ahead of time just so that we had a good, you know, a good idea of what we could do and build up. However, now it seems like it's just coming in huge waves. Um, for our ER, we generally don't do PCR testing. Um, we just do clinical diagnosis because we, we will do the we will do an RSV panel when those patients get them if they are admitted. I'm specifically talking about the patients that come in and are touched by the healthcare system, even though they just they aren't admitted. Like there's still a cost to the hospital and a cost to families for you know even that quick ER visit. Um, because they are still, we are getting overrun with that. Um, right now, our ERs have been, our ER census has been pretty high um, and it has been pretty unpredictable um, as to when we're gonna have waves and what it is. And so um, that's the kind of impact that we have had, or that has had on us is not so much like it's just census is very high and we are scrambling trying to get supplies and everything ready to go. Yeah. And I think as, as you just alluded to, this is, um, we, we used to have a heads up and we used to be able to gear up towards respiratory season. And as you already alluded to, there is no respiratory season anymore. Um, and this was definitely from an impact of COVID-19. COVID-19 really, uh, made its own rules. And because of that now, like there's no, there's no seasonality, like it runs through the summer. And so as healthcare providers and as health system, it really does make it hard for us to anticipate what's, what's going to happen. Um, with that being said, um, are there particular groups of children that are at risk of serious complications of RSV and what are their, what are the actual uh, risk factors? Sure. So um, patients at most risk are patients that were born within um, 29 or born less than 29 weeks old, all patients that are born less than 29 weeks old. Um, patients that are born that were are less than 12 months old that have chronic lung disease or prematurity, um, patients that have uh, heart disease, um, these are cyanotic heart defects, um, congenital airway abnormalities, patients with cystic fibrosis. Um, also, um, specifically, there are um, groups in, of Alaska Natives and then Native Americans from the White Mountain region um, in the Southwest that also are at particular um, risk. I'm not going to lie. I did not know that, Christina. Thank you. Yeah. So, we're going to get into a little bit about how we can prevent RSV here in a bit, but uh, walk us through, are there any treatments for RSV at this time that are available? No, unfortunately, um, antivirals are not uh, recommended. They're not effective. Um, treatment is supportive care. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the biggest reasons why um, we we really have to invest a lot of healthcare resource toward 
um, supporting these kids because literally we don't have a way to treat this particular virus when it does happen. And so if a child's hospitalized or comes to the emergency department, it's really just supporting their their own health while um, their own body kind of fights this uh, particular virus off. Yeah. And so what are um, the current guidelines, Christina, for as far as the prevention of complications associated with RSV? So there isn't really one set of guidelines, but um, the um, American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC both put out um, recommendations for both palivizumab or just one of our current uh, prevention methods, and then they have put out for our newer prevention method as well. Um, and that was based on the fact that when um, palivizumab was uh, approved the the guideline or the FDA said approved it for use in patients at risk but didn't define what those patients are so it was really left up to the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC to define that so I don't think they're they are the two uh, stakeholders that own these um, recommendations and they actually just updated the, the recommendations this year Great. Those are helpful reminders. And you mentioned Synergist here, so I want to kind of riff off of that a little bit. So it's been available here in the U.S. for well over a decade. So maybe tell us a little bit more about Synergist and how it's used, what effect it has on RSV complications. Sure. So Synergist has been used, um, is given in a series of five, um, typically up to five doses, um, it's dosed 15 milligrams per kilogram um, and given intramuscularly monthly. Um, it's given throughout the season to those patients that I just mentioned before that are at the greatest risk. Um, you, we typically will give it 48 to 72 hours before they are being discharged from home. So they will get their first dose in hospital and then they will get their subsequent doses at um, a their primary care provider usually is where they get that. Um, it's designed to limit. Um, it's designed to limit the severity of um, uh, infection. It's um, designed to prevent um, complications in those patients specifically that have other. Um, comorbidities that might leave them at risk for um, acute respiratory failure or um, bronchiolitis, like we mentioned, or then for a pneumonia as well. I want to also just um, add into, because my many years of, of working in, in the NICU, there was always that lingering question of um, availability and acquisition outpatient. So can you can you talk about that? And then I would always have to to um, talk the providers out of just giving that one dose that was covered mm -hmm. inpatient. And then so that kind of piggybacks off of that question is, you know, availability outpatient because of the administration and frequency. I think, again, we um, because these patients, our patients that we're giving synergists to are generally patients that have other diseases. We, um, a lot of them are then seen in our own clinic. So that's less of an issue for us because usually it's, we have pharmacists, you know, our care pharmacists are really good about 
helping and working with the inpatient pharmacists to get those doses scheduled for the patients at clinics outpatient. Do you, did you ever, did you find it valuable to um, give that one dose that's covered inpatient and then, and then discharge them? That was like the, always the, the, the question I would get from um, my NICU providers is, can I just give them this one? But then because the insurance makes it so hard by the restrictions to obtain it and it's expensive, I don't know if you have any, um, any words of wisdom on that. Um, no, not for this one. This, this one, though, I think because the it's not the one shot is not going to cover you the entire season. Um, now we purposely hold off and do not give um, synergists until our patients are about to leave, um, and then we have just good case managers and good follow-up um, to ensure that the patients do get the extra doses. Now, I would say like if it was the tail end of the season, you could make a case for, you know, if it's, if you think it's May or if it's the May and the baby being discharged, you're not sure and you've, we've seen, there is enough surveillance around to kind of have an idea of like what our local RSV rates are. I think that would be the only case where I would be like, okay, one and done is fine. I think it would have to do with the seasonality. Which we don't have anymore. Well, I meant more like our local <laughs> seasonality. We have our local surveillance um, through the state that we, um, and then our local hospital surveillance is like reporting. But really I would, I would almost always just push for completing the series. Oh, that's great. So, of course, we've just talked about palivizumab or, or Synergist, but there's a new kid on the block called Nersevimab, right? Or Bayfortis is the brand name, recently mm -hmm. approved by the FDA for the prevention of severe RSV disease. So, uh, as I've read a little bit about this, a lot of people are touting this new agent as kind of like a game changer. So, tell us more about uh, Nersevimab and how it differs from Synergist. Yes. So, um, nisivimab um, is still a monoclonal antibody. Um, it the differences with this are that um, it's had better data, better testing on otherwise healthy infants. Um, had about 80% reduction in RSV across all severities. So they were, you know, 80% in uh, prevention of cases where just um, they might have, you know, uh, some a rough bad cold at home versus then those hospitalizations as well. Um, this is a one and done dose, which given our top previous um, topic right there, it may, it's a big deal. Um, the recommendations for this uh, are weight-based. So you get 50 milligrams IV, or I'm sorry, IM times one dose. If they're less than five kilos, uh, if the patient weighs more than five kilos, they get 100 milligram dose times one. Um, this is for all patients um, given, and then they rec all patients less than one in during RSV season, um, whatever that may be. Um, and then also it should be given within one week of birth. Awesome, thank you so much. So um, for the ACIP and the CDC, um, they have added recommendations regarding uh, Bayfortis, if I'm saying that right, um, to the childhood immunization schedule as a passive immunization. So what do you think about, um, what do you think is the place of, in therapy for this new, new drug? 
Honestly, I would really like to see it given with those, um, with the hep B you get at birth or the vitamin K, add it to that series there, add it to those um, things that we give every baby. Um, I mean, parents still have the right to choose to decline these things. Um, But I really think it's going to be like the one and done at the end at discharge. Um, I think it should be given then if not at discharge, um, when mom and baby are going home, um, then um, at that first well care visit, because it's usually within a week of life. Awesome. Okay, so to piggyback off of that, um, I'm very curious about, in your opinion, where should we be giving nursevimab? So I know that lots of hospitals are having conversations about do we give it in birthing hospitals, which aside from Hep B, many of them aren't necessarily used to giving additional um, drugs like this. Should it be given in NICUs prior to discharge? Should pediatricians um, be the ones to give this? All of the above. What are some of the conversations going on there at Riley Children's? And, and what is your opinion on where we should give nursevimab? I would say I'm a fan of all above. I'm a fan of vaccinating everywhere, all over. Um, but I think following the, I really think it would be most reasonable for it to be given. It probably won't be something that we give in a NICU unless it's, we might give it again just at discharge. So if it's gonna be given in a hospital, I think it's gonna be right at the end of a patient's stay. Um, I think that it would be, there are very, few side effects associated with this. It doesn't have, there wasn't a lot of incidence of uh, anaphylaxis or um, hypersensitive reactions. So I think um, safety wise, I still think it would be okay to give it in doctor's offices as well. Well, that's, that's great. And I feel like, do you, do you foresee in your your experience already um, any issues with acquisition? Like I'm just thinking of like the COVID vaccine you can't even get for yeah. under the age of two. So we can do put this all out in good faith and then there'll be that, that can be a huge hiccup. I don't know if you have any experience with that thus far. I do think, I mean, I think at least for the first couple of years, that is going to be an issue. <clears throat> we are not using it this year. Um, we were not able to get, um, through our uh, PNT committee and get all of our like Riley um, specific uh, ducks in a row um, before that because it's just too new. Same with um, so I think yeah we're just going to do uh, we're just going to do palibizumab this season. So I want to go back to some of the data from the clinical trials and ask your opinion on cost effectiveness. So just to kind of frame the question, uh, the rate of hospitalization for RSV infection has been reported to be around one to four percent of infants in the U.S., which the statistics I've seen is that about 80,000 infants are hospitalized with RSV annually. So that's a, a pretty big number. Um, and we should care about that. Uh, based on the clinical trials, the number needed to treat that I've seen is around 50 children. I think 53 was in one of the most recent studies. Um, so we would need to treat 50 of these kids 
with nirsevimab to prevent one case of medically attended lower respiratory tract infection. So think hospitalization or coming to the emergency department. And right now, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like each dose, so this is a single dose, like you mentioned, will cost somewhere around $500, and that's going to vary with buyer groups and all kinds of other stuff. But um, what do you think about the cost effectiveness of, of treatment? Do you think, um, again, we're fans of immunizing, right? We want to prevent these um, illnesses and the consequences of them when possible. But do you think that this is going to be a cost-effective treatment for kids? I think that's a really hard question to answer without like strong population data once we actually see this out in use. Um, start off any child that would have qualified for palavizumab, I think we can argue it will see a cost benefit to nisirvimab just based on the reduction of hospital missions and all of the other things. Now, I think then where we're going to get into issues is going to be those healthy infants, the ones that um, we're giving this for, and they, the majority of them will never have severe disease. But I think that it's what, from anecdotal experience. Um, we do still have kids that have RSV, have a severe um, infection, not to the point where they have to be hospitalized, but you know, they really struggle at home. It takes a week, it takes two weeks to get better. Um, they may still go to an outpatient visit that costs money. They may get an antibiotic because it's been so long and they were never tested or we have to test them now. Um, and then that, like, you know, the cost of the lab test is not ins insignificant as well. So I think it's going to be like to frame it as like hospitalization only, I think is going to get us into trouble. And we're going to have to really talk about these other intangibles. Um, children that end up uh, needing a, a nebulizer and end up on albuterol for several years because they had RSV. I think these are also things that when you add up the cost of all of these incidentals, you're really going to find that this this drug is going to be cost effective. Yeah, yeah, and I think with I can just speak to like what just happened with my 18 month old. Like, I had to bring her twice to the pediatrician. One because she needed an albuterol because she I wasn't sure if she was wheezing or not. Um, and then the second time was day five of fever, and so. Like, I'm like, now as a mom, I'm nervous. Like, is, is this respiratory and vi just viral or has this now turned bacterial or do we not have no idea? The answer is we had no idea. So once it turned into day six of, of fever, now I've had three pediatrician visits and antibiotic, you know, so it, it all, uh, albuterol, so it does, it all adds up and, and they don't test, um, you know, in your pediatrician offices, like a viral panel. So again, I really cringe at using antibiotics that we don't need, but it's like, okay, if even when my own kid has fevers for six days, I'm like, give me something. Like I'm mm -hmm. starting, I'm on the verge of going crazy from lack of sleep. And I'm like, I don't know. Like if, if you can't prove it's not a virus, then, you know, we please give us something. So that's a real life situation that I just went through this week that you just described. So uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think as, as um, I know we kind of, alluded to, you're not using uh, Bayfortis in Riley's. Are, are we aware of anyone that's actually 
actively using it right now? Any hospitals? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty out of the hospital so, side at the moment. I'm not aware of any. Okay. Okay. I do know there are a lot that are, are planning and having discussions, as Christina mentioned, at the, the PNT level and are moving toward the direction of Bay Fortis um, and, and away from um, Synergist, but I don't know where they are in the process at this moment. Cool. Um, so there are now two new vaccines approved for the prevention of RSV. Um, a Rexv and a, a Breezevio. Oh my God, I'm gonna I'm butchering all the names. I got um, like how many how many V's and Y's can you put in things? Um, but these, <laughs> these vaccines are only approved in adults. So, what is the role of these vaccines in preventing RSV in children? Um, and I know from working in the maternal units, you probably have a lot more insight than, than we do. So please share. So unfortunately, the role, like neither of the, all of, both of these have been approved, but I know the, the RSV uh, vaccine for adults over 60, that's in retail stores and you can get that. Um, the one for pregnant moms was like just approved last month. So it was weird. We know the name of it. That's about all. Um, but let I me mean, has good data. The, the recommendation, recommendations just came out, I should say. So it's recommended for pregnant women between 32 and 36 weeks when they um, during an RSV season, which again, that's going to end up being the term during a an RSV season is going to be another clinical judgment as to is it a season or not. Um, it's approved for use. It's just a one-time uh, dose, and then it confers immunity. Uh, the data shows it confers immunity for up to six months to the baby, which gets you through that very, very worst part of the season, uh, or very scariest part for infants to get RSV. So with that being said, do you foresee these RSV vaccines ever being approved in children, or do you think administration to women who are pregnant will confer enough immunity to get them through the period of highest risk, depending on what the RSV season looks like? I think you're going to see them. I, they may run data on children later. I don't know that. I think the one for moms will just probably stay pregnant moms. Similar like similar thought process to a mom getting a Tdap shot that then helps um, with whooping cough later on. So I really think that that's going to be the kind of um, role for that. Um, the other one for adults over 60, Maybe down the road. I don't know of any data going out right now for children. Um, I think with uh, nasirvimab, you you have something. There are recommendations where mom can get this, and if it's still in the season and the baby and the child ends up developing RSV, they can receive um, nasirvimab. At the, even though mom has gotten that, they they can get both. Um, do they need it right at birth all the time? No. I think if mom, it can be in one or the other for um, babies now. Mom can choose to get it herself or she can choose to wait and give it to the baby, I think, is that role. Yeah, I could see that being a huge way pharmacists can intervene on cost reduction when you think of the, po the possible duplicate therapy that's going to happen. Um, that 
you know, if you miss that mom received the vaccine and then we're starting to give the monoclonal antibody, I can see that it would be a sticky situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know we, we, you hit on this, but the vaccines are already available for use. Um, obviously, it was just approved. Have you seen any any institutions like rolling it out or any um like, I mean, Riley's would be, you have a, a huge patient population. So if you didn't roll it out, I'm assuming not a lot of people have. I think it's just the, the amount of time between approval, um, availability, why availability, and then um, going through the institutional um, powers that be to get things on formulary. So I think just all of that, um, I think it's just really kind of slowing it. I don't know, and we're we're not anywhere near. We haven't taken it to our OB clinical council yet, so um, it's just something fun and new on the horizon. But practically, probably not for the next or for this season that we're in currently. Got it. So I'm curious: Are there any other prevention or treatment modalities for RSV that you're aware of that are in um, various stages of clinical trials or anything like that? No, not currently that I know of. I think mainly just prevention is just your basic prevention: um, hand washing, you know, keeping um, your infants home in the cold winter months when they're first born um as much as you can keeping younger siblings that you know love to share everything away for or older siblings away from the new baby um just basic prevention is probably our best i remember having a distinct heart attack once i realized that that is not feasible and like i looked over and my two-year-old was literally licking my newborn and i think she was like four days old and i was like oh my god like it's so hard like if you put the baby down at all you see like the the older siblings just like waiting to get to them so Mm -hmm. while it's a great idea i feel like you could feasibility wise it is super hard right And I don't know why my my middle child loved to lick the baby, which the more attention I drew to it, the more it happened. (laughs) Um, But thank you so much. Um, Guys, as we wrap up, do you guys have any closing thoughts or any additional questions, Justin? Christina, I'm just thankful that you were willing to come and share your expertise today. Uh, I learned a lot. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Have a great day. You too. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.